MC. And I said the topic of becoming. And she looked a little askance and she said, well, speak slowly. <laughs> and you may need some tension tamer after the talk. So, um, the word becoming, the Pali word is bhava, is a very important word in the Buddha's teachings. He defines the cause of suffering in terms of bhava. He defines suffering itself often in terms of bhava. And yet he doesn't ever define it what he means. The only way you can find a definition is looking at how he uses it in the text, in different different contexts. But I think a good way for us to get a grasp of the concept is to reflect on the fact that even though we all live in the same world, we live in different worlds. And it's the same world and the different worlds are also as, both aspects of bhava, or becoming. For instance, suppose you were looking at a mountain and you had training in as a geologist, as a miner, as a skier, and as a photographer. Now, depending on what you wanted out of the mountain, you would see a different mountain, and you would be a different person. If you wanted to get wealth out of the mountain, you'd put aside your photographer and you'd be the miner. If you wanted to get adventure out of the mountain, you would be the skier. And again, each case you would see the different mountain. You would notice the striations in the rock in a different way. If there was snow or there's no snow, that would have different meanings for you. And this sense of what you want out of something, based on your experience around things like that, is, and also the sense of identity that inhabits that, all that is becoming. So you've got your sense of identity in a certain world of experience based around a desire, based around a sense of clinging. Um, the Buddhist word bhava is sometimes translated as becoming, sometimes as existence, or sometimes as being. I tend to prefer the translation becoming because it is something that follows on doing. We're not talking about a metaphysical absolute. It's something that the mind creates, and there's a continual process going on here. The Buddha says there are basically three levels of bhava. Um, the first level is based on sensual desire. You inhabit the world of your senses because you want something out of the senses. You want nice sounds, nice smells, nice tastes, nice tactile sensations, um, and so on. That's, that's one level. It's the sensual level of becoming. A second level of becoming is the level of form. You might want to try an experiment. Close your eyes right now and think about your body as you're experiencing it from the inside. As you experience it, you can't tell what color it is, you can't tell what you look like, whether you're old, whether you're young. There's just a shape of the body that you're inhabiting. If you try to fully inhabit the body, your arms, your legs, be aware of the entire body, that's called an ex a bhava or be level of becoming a form, because it's the shape of the body as experienced from within. And it can be painful or it can be relatively pleasant. In fact, one of the practices of meditation is to make this experience pleasant. A third level of bhava is the formless one. Now suppose your breath were to stop while you're sitting here with your eyes closed. And not stop because you're dying, but simply stop because the mind comes to a great sense of peace and calm. After a while, the sense of the surface of your body as defined by the shape of the body would begin to dissolve. Because there was no motion inside to create that sense. And you would have a sensation of kind of little dots of feeling, dots of sensation filling the body. And then you might realize, okay, there's space between the dots, and you could go with the space, and you realize there's no, no end to the space. That would be a formless state of becoming. 
Just focus on the sense of space, sort of it permeating your body and extending out in all directions. What's interesting about the human condition is that we go from these levels relatively quickly. You can have a sensual desire and then you decide, I don't want to bother with that desire, you let it go, you're sitting in meditation, get back in touch with your breath. There you are with a level of form. And if you really develop this, you can get it to a formless level. This process of becoming, or these three levels, have both psychological and cosmological dimensions. Um, this is one of the distinctive parts about the Buddha's teaching, is that the process, he says, by which we create these worlds as we go through the day is the same process that when, after you pass away, you go to another level of being. It's the same sort of thing. There's a, de a desire, and then there's a sense of identity built around the desire, and then a world that you inhabit based ar around that desire as well. Now, whether you accept the Buddha's teaching on rebirth or not, he says the important thing is that you learn how to master the process here in the present moment. Um, now, for many of us, we can be interested in the topic of bhava or becoming um, because of the light that it shows on, say, how you create a fictional world. If you're a writer trying to create a world of fiction, you have to fully inhabit that world of your imagination. If you're say, a mathematician working on a more formless level, again, you have to fully inhabit those uh, the forms of the math or the formless and more abstract parts of the math. Um, it's, also, it's also interesting to think about your dreams in terms of bhava. You, if you ever watch yourself fall asleep, you realize there's a point where you lose sense of your outside surroundings and an, an image of another world appears in your mind, and you go zip right into the image. And that's when you've fallen asleep and then started your first dream. Um, However, from the Buddhist point of view, he's more interested in the relationship of becoming to the problem of why there is stress and suffering and how you can put an end to stress and suffering. That's where the focus of his discussion is. And he noted that the process that creates becoming is also the same process that creates suffering. So that these imaginary worlds as we create them, or these worlds of experience as we create them, we're creating stress, we're creating suffering. Now the level of Stress may be so refined that you know you wouldn't really want to call it suffering. I had a friend in Bangkok, uh, uh, an American journalist, and he said, "You Buddhist guys, uh, why are you always talking about suffering? I don't have any suffering in my life. This isn't relevant to me." Um, and I said, "Do you have any stress in your life?" He said, "Oh yeah, all the time." <laughs> That's there you are. Okay. So whether you talk about stress, I prefer to talk about stress myself because suffering is too you know, sort of dramatic and romantic. Um, when you talk about your suffering, you really like to cling to your suffering because it feels nice to have a good, you know, juicy suffering. Uh, it's like, like Rachmaninoff. Um, but if it's just stress, you know, <laughs> but it's just stress, there's nothing romantic about it. Okay, so think of it, you know, the process of creating these worlds is stressful. Um, you know, we think of fictional worlds as having kind of a, a nice beginning and a nice end, which is one of the reasons why we like fi fiction. It, the world is not like that. We create these states of becoming, and then they just tend to kind of peter out or unravel, or we get bored with them and move on to another one. And it's this pro process of constant unraveling, or the fact that if you want to keep a state of becoming going, you have to keep looking after it and tending to it. There's a, a fair amount of stress that goes into that process. And so... From the Buddhist point of view, it's important that we understand this process so ultimately that we can put an end to it. Um, he tells a story that illustrates um, the way becoming comes about and how it causes suffering. And here I'd like to sort of 
give you a little sense of the Buddhist sense of cosmology. Um, the Buddhism does not have a creation myth or a creation story. There's no one beginning point in time where one being decided this is how things are going to be and sets it into motion. Instead, the cosmos is kind of an ongoing process. The Buddhist once said that if you tried to find the beginning of the process, you would just you'd never be able to do it in time. However, you can see how the process is kept going, and this is the important part about it, is how we keep this thing going. And he has what you might call the, the bang, bang, bang theory of, of the cosmos, <laughs> which instead of one big bang, the world evolves, and then it devolves, and then it evolves again, and devolves again, and just goes around in these cycles. And the theory that he presents is that when the cosmos basically devolves and there's no place for beings to go, beings tend to go into two directions, one up to the formless levels and a few really unlucky ones go to the lowest levels of hell, where they stay. And then as the cosmos begins to evolve, then the beings start penetrating the cosmos again, either from below or from above. And there's one story about how the beings coming down from above, and they come from this formless level. They're reborn in this world. Um, there's some interesting parallels with Genesis. Um, in the beginning, the world is formless, and it's nothing but water. Okay? And the beings are self-luminous. They float around in the sky, and they're just having a good time, and they feed on rapture. And you think feeding on rapture, they'd be perfectly happy. However, <laughs> as they're floating around above the water, one of them begins to notice there's this film developing on the water. And he gets curious. And out of wantonness. Now, isn't this interesting that the cosmos developed out of wantonness? Okay? Um, he goes down, he says, what is this? And he takes his finger and he, ta- and he tastes it. This reminds me of a story I heard one time of a co-op in New York where a couple had just got a new apartment. And they looked up at the wall one time and they noticed this red sticky liquid coming down the, down the wall from the ceiling. And... They noticed this a couple days, and then there was another line and another line. They began to wonder what this was. And then the wife said, get me a ladder. And so she got a ladder, and she went up, and she tasted it. And it turned out it was sweet. And they discovered later that the the co-op had been a a sugar factory, a candy factory. And somehow some syrup was still left in the building. However, when um, she announced this at the co-op meeting, everybody's reaction was, you tasted it? (laughs) So here's this... So think of this being coming down to the water, and he t- sticks his finger in this film. It, it, looks, it looks attractive, they, and the, the description is it's the color of ghee or good butter. And the taste is the taste of pure wild honey. He loves it. And so at, at this point, excuse me, at this point there's no he or she, it's ne- neuter beings. At any rate, this being just starts descending on it, and the crave, as, as, the sta- as the story says, craving alights and focuses on the, this film, which is called Flavor Earth. Um, and so he descends on this and just gobbles it down. The other beings see this, and they start tasting, and they start gobbling it down too. Now, what's interesting about this, as, as they gobble it down, they lose their self-luminosity. They can't feed on rapture anymore. They lose their own light. As they lose their own light, the sun appears, the moon appears, there's day, there's night, the seasons, the years. Um, if you've had any experience with addiction, you can see the parallels in this story. You know, the craving, acting on the craving, causes not only themselves to change, the world around them changes as well. If you're an alcoholic, you go into somebody's house, and I, I've never been an alcoholic, but my, my brother is, um, and he admits that when you go into a house, you find out very quickly where the alcohol is kept in the house. It's something you're very sensitive to. 
Whereas if you're not an alcoholic, you wouldn't even think to ask. But that's not a part of your world. And it's the same, it's the same in any state of becoming. Is it based on a desire? You begin to pick up different details in the world around you. The world changes. And you change as well. You become a different kind of person based on, on the desires that you follow. The Buddha has an analogy for all of this. It's, the analogy is of a seed being planted in a field and being watered that then grows into a state of becoming. The field here stands for karma, both past karma and present karma. Now it's important that you understand that in, in the Buddhist teaching, karma is not deterministic. You have all, the results of your actions in the past and it's like a field full of many kind of different plants or many different potentials. Um, and then you, in your, as a present action or as a present intention, choose what you're interested in and what you want to develop out of those many potentials that are being offered at any one particular time. So think of your past karma as offering kind of a, a potential field in which you can then pick and choose what you're interested in. In some cases, this analogy that karma is also represented as the aggregates, the aggregate of form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness. And these two are a type of karma, both past and present. Like your experience of your body is based to some extent on your past actions and also to some extent on how you're relating to the body right now. So karma is kind of an interaction between past and present. So that's the field. Now the seed that's being planted here is consciousness. Now, consciousness is not simply a passive act of receiving impressions. It's also more active. There are certain things you're going to be interested in, certain things you're going to want to develop. But the consciousness here doesn't grow unless it's watered. And the water here is craving and clinging. The craving may be either to continue enjoying the, this field of karma, or if, it's, say, good karma is being brought up by the field, you want to continue enjoying that good karma. Or if some bad karma is being brought up, you want to change it. You want to get away, do away with it or alter it in some way. But either way, there's a craving and there's a kind of a clinging to this activity of wanting to rearrange the world all the time. This is what we do all the time. We, you know, we can't leave good enough alone. Um, we're always rearranging our experiences depending on what we like and what we don't like. And it's this craving and clinging which focuses us on particular aspects of this field of potential karmas. Um, now the title of tonight's talk is called The Paradox of Becoming, and the paradox is this. Um, <clears throat> the craving and clinging that keep the becoming going don't necessarily have to like the becoming that's being produced. They don't have to necessarily even like the field. They may actually more enjoy their present activity. You know, say you have a pain in your body and you get really absorbed in how to get rid of the pain. There's a craving there to get rid of the pain. There's a craving there to clinging to whatever modes you feel work, that too acts as a cause of becoming. So even though you may want to do away with a particular state of becoming, the fact that you have that craving to do away with it just creates more becoming. Now given the fact that the processes of becoming are stressful and can cause suffering, you've got a problem. Because if you want to try to you know, push the suffering away, you create more. If you try to push away whatever state of becoming you've created, or if you try to maintain the state of becoming, you're just creating more and more becoming. So this creates um, a strategic problem. And the strategic requirement, um, let's see, is this. Is it possible to create a state of becoming that you can just kind of be with things as they are, simply note how they're happening, and let them go, without you trying to either create more or do away with what you've got? 
And the Buddha's discovery was that, yes, there is. And that's the secret to his path. You're practicing a path of practice, which is to create a particular state of becoming, which then allows becoming to fall away. And in particular, <coughs> right concentration is the state of becoming that he focused on. You get the mind into a state of centered concentration, still focused not on any sensual object, and we'll get to the reason for that, but simply on the state of form or the state of formlessness, i.e. you're creating a level of becoming that's either based on the form of the body or on a formless sensation. From that position, then you can allow the process, you know, the sort of your field of karma to produce its potentials and not get involved in them. And we'll talk about a little bit more about how that works further on. But first I'd like to point out how the, the issue of sensual clinging um, cannot exist in that particular state. It's because there really is no peace in, in sensual clinging. Because sensual objects can arise and pass away, arise and pass away. And when, you know, as soon as you grab for something, it's gone. So you keep grabbing again and again and again. There's a story of a young novice meditating by a river. His name is Ajirawati. And one day this prince, who is out for exercise, happens to come by the novice's hut. And the prince says, I hear you, you monks um, practice concentration of mind. You get the mind still. And Ajirawati says, yes, we do. And could you explain it to me, the prince says. And, Ajir- and the novice says, you wouldn't understand. And the prince says, what do you mean? Give me a try, at least. And the Jirawati says, okay, I'll give it a try, but if you don't understand, just leave it at that, okay? And so you get the, you get the impression this particular prince is known for being a troublemaker. So Jirawati tries to explain how you get the mind still by focusing on the breath. And the prince says, impossible, you can't do that. And he walks away. So Jirawati goes to see the Buddha and reports the conversation. And, it, and the Buddha says, well, how could you expect the prince to understand this? And his mind lives constantly in, in indulging in sensual fevers, sensual passions. He's always thinking about where the next sensual fix is going to come. That kind of person cannot understand the idea that the mind could be perfectly happy to be still just with the breath. So that's a particular kind of clinging that you cannot have involved in this state of right concentration. There was, there's another passage where after the Buddha passes away, one of the Brahmins who's a government official. And one of the things I like about the Pali Canon is that government officials are kind of dumb. <laughs> and the higher up, the dumber. You know? <laughs> so this, this government official comes to see Ananda, and he says, oh, I, I, really, I really appreciate the Buddha. The Buddha, the Buddha taught on you know, concentration is a good thing. In fact, he praised all kinds of concentration. And Ananda says, well, that's not true. There are certain kinds of concentration he didn't praise. Concentration on anger, concentration on lust. He, the Buddha didn't approve of these at all. He wanted a concentration that was divorced from sensual passion. Okay. So that's going to be one of, the, one of the requirements. That There are many kinds of clinging we'll go into. In fact, there are four altogether. But sensual clinging cannot be involved in the state of becoming that you're trying to develop here as part of the path. Okay. Turns out that right concentration was the first factor of the path that the Buddha, when he was still a young prince, discovered. You probably know the story where he, he went out in the forest and he was engaging in austerities. And after six years of austerities, you think about someone who engages in austerities, I'm starving themselves and doing all these other horrible things. What's keeping them going? Pride. I can do this, nobody else can. Okay. 
That's the only way you can keep going with a, with a particular path, path like that. But after six years, he began to realize this isn't working. And I think this is one of the more amazing parts of the Buddha's story, was he had, was willing to let go of his pride and say, this is not working, I've got to find something else. And so he cast around in his mind, said, could there be another path? And he remembered a time when he was a young child sitting under a tree, and his mind had entered the first jhana, or the first level of uh, right concentration. And the question arose in his mind, could this be the path? And the, re- and the response came, yes, it could. In fact, yes, it is. This is the path. So right concentration was the first factor of the path that the Buddha discovered. The other seven factors he gradually sort of added as, as he continued his practice. Um, the next question he asked himself is, okay, why am I, fear to that, why am I afraid of that pleasure? Because in doing these austerities, he was constantly trying to avoid pleasure of any kind. And he said, really, there's nothing to be afraid of in that pleasure. But when the body is weak like this from starving, it cannot attain that state. So it was because of that that he began to come back and, and eat food normally. And this um, explains the place of sensual pleasure in the path. I mean, you need a certain amount of sensual pleasure in order just to keep the body strong enough, i.e. you need to feed it, keep it healthy, so that the mind can, stay, can, can gain a state of concentration. So this is one of the, the paradoxes of the path, is on the one hand it requires a certain amount of pleasure, but on the other hand you cannot have sensual clinging. Now, you know your mind. At one point, you know, when you've had your second ice cream cone or your third ice cream cone, are you saying, oh, is this just pleasure or is this clinging? <laughs> and there's always going to be part of the mind that says, pleasure, it's just pleasure, <laughs> no problem. This is why the Buddha has people reflect on the requisites, on why you're eating. In other words, you're not supposed to be eating to fatten up the body, to put on bulk, or just to enjoy the food, but simply to keep the body alive and strong enough to practice. In fact, that's the symptom that you should be reflecting on as you eat. At what point do you get to the point where, okay, this is enough just to keep the body going, I've got to stop. And this is an important part of the practice, is seeing that line and getting more and more sensitive to it. John Cha has a, an interesting test. He says, if you know that in within three mouthfuls you're going to be full, stop. And that requires a lot of sensitivity. How much more is three mouthfuls? And how much more is fullness? You have to be really sensitive to that. So, so you do have to watch out that you're not just you know, keep it going over the line. However, because jhana, right concentration, is a form of becoming, it also requires clinging to keep it going. It requires craving. And this is an important part to remember from tonight's, uh, from tonight's talk. Because many times you feel people, you'll find people saying, "Gee, I had this wonderful state of concentration last night, but I guess if I, you know, if I want it back again, that's clinging, and I've got to let go." No, no, hold on. <laughs> you have to like the concentration. You have to want to do it in order to do it skillfully. Um, and that the question of skillfulness is important here. I, it, it's not just brute desire to get the concentration, but it's learning how to focus your desire on the causes of the concentration so you can actually learn how to master it. So there is a certain amount of craving, a certain amount of clinging that's needed to keep concentration going. And... In all, the Buddha delineated four types of clinging. First, there's sensual passion clinging, which he said is not appropriate here. But then there are three others which are appropriate for the purpose of the path. First is views. And we cling to views. We know often how, to, how oftentimes it's very harmful if we cling to a view, a wrong view, at the, or a right view at the wrong time. The Buddha, however, develop, has you develop a particular kind of right view for the path, which is looking at things in terms of where there's stress, what you're doing to cause the stress, and what you can do to stop contributing to that cause. 
It's just, in formal terms, this is called the Four Noble Truths. Um, that kind of view you want to hold on to, because that's that's basically a view that helps you get more skillful at whatever kind of skills you're trying to develop as part of the path. You get the mind to settle down. Say you're focusing on the breath. Okay, is the mind at ease with the breath? And you say, well, not really. There's still a sense of disease. Okay, what's causing the disease? And then you look into that. And this is applying right view to the problem of how I can get the mind to be more still, more calm, more comfortable. So you want to hold on to that view. Um, a second part of right view is called right resolve, or sometimes it's called right intention or right aspiration. You resolve not to get involved in sensual, uh, sensual clingings. You resolve not to think ill will of people, even though they live in undisclosed locations. Um, <laughs> and, you, and you resolve not to be harmful, not to do violence. Because you realize if you do any of these things, it's going to cause more stress and more suffering, either to yourself or to the other people. You want to avoid that. So these are the views that you hold on to in order to develop your right concentration in the right direction. Secondly, there are this clinging to habits and practices. Now, the word for habit here also means virtue or precept. You may have heard this as clinging to precepts and practices or clinging to view uh, rites and rituals. The word sila, which is often translated as virtue or, or, or precept, can also simply mean habit. I mean, they're good habits and they're bad habits. And we all know how we cling to habits. One of my favorite stories is of your inner goose. There was a story of Conrad Lawrence. You, I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was a biologist who lived in Austria. Um, he wrote the book on aggression. And there's one, one incident in the book where he talks about the story of uh, he had a goose who laid some eggs, had some goslings, and then the mother, mother goose died, and there's one gosling left. And so he takes on the gosling and feeds it. And of course, the gosling immediately imprints on Conrad Lawrence, follows him around as if it's his mother. And so this is during the summer, and so the gosling lives outside, and it grows eventually into being a goose. And as the fall comes on, Conrad Lawrence realizes that he's got to take the goose inside. Now, the goose has never been in the house before. So, so he... One evening, it's time for the goose to eat, and Conrad Lawrence comes home from work, and he, instead of giving the goose the food outside, he just walks into the apartment. So the goose follows him in. And the, the apartment is set up so that there's a hallway going down to a window at the far end, and then halfway down the hall, there's a stairway going up to the right. So Conrad Lawrence goes up the stairway. Well, in the meantime, the goose is freaking out. It's never been inside a closed space before. It sees the window, goes running to the window realizes it can't get out, and he sees Conrad Lawrence going up the stairs, so eventually turns around and follows Conrad Lawrence up the stairs, has its meal. Well, the next day, uh, Conrad Lawrence opens the door, and now the goose knows enough to come inside, so it goes in, walks to the window, comes back, and goes up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with the passage of time, the, the, the walk to the window gets shorter and shorter, until finally he goes to that side of the stairway, shakes his leg at the, at the window, goes up the stairs. <laughs> Well, there's one evening when Conrad Lawrence comes home late from work, and the goose is really hungry. So as soon as Conrad Lawrence opens the door, the goose runs in and runs up the stairs. <laughs> Stops halfway up the stairs. Starts shaking all over. Walks down the stairs, walks over to the window, comes back, goes up. <laughs> That's clinging to habits and practices. So, so some of our clinging to habits and practices, we're clinging to our inner goose. Um, 
But there are habits and practices that are useful to cling to for the, for the sake of the path. And here we have right speech, right action, right livelihood. In other words, you don't speak in ways that are untruthful. You don't speak in ways that are harsh and hurtful. You don't speak in ways that divide people against each other. And finally, you don't engage in idle chatter, i.e. speech with no real intention at all. You just open your mouth and let it flap. Um, that's, that's a, these are good habits. Those are, you know, if you avoid those four kinds of wrong speech, that's a good habit to develop, to develop right concentration. With right action, no killing, no stealing, no illicit sex. Right livelihood is not clearly defined, but it's essentially it's, it's any lively, wrong livelihood is any livelihood which either causes harm or engage, and causes you to become dishonest. So you want to avoid those kinds of habits, the wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood. And as far as practices, you want to develop the practice of jhana, i.e. the practice of right concentration, where you make a habit of trying to bring the mind to a sense of stillness. And again, there's, there's some misunderstanding about jhana. You're not blanking out in jhana, you're developing a full body awareness. You're fully inhabiting the form of your body. So there's this full body awareness that you try to carry into as many aspects of your life as possible. Finally, there's clinging to doctrines of the self. Um, and the Buddha never said there is no self, but he said there are ways of creating a sense of self that are skillful and ways that are unskillful. Skillful in this, um, in, for the purpose of the path, is to have a sense of responsibility, self-reliance. That you are a responsible person. You take responsibility for your actions. You learn to rely on yourself to do things more and more skillfully as you're able. There's a passage where the Buddha has you reflect every day. I am the owner of my actions. I'm the owner of my karma. Whatever I do for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. That's, that's a kind of implicit, there's an implicit sense of self there. and It doesn't get too clearly defined, but there is what's important there is the sense that you're responsible for whatever happiness or suffering you're going to experience. And so you should try to act more and more skillfully all the time, i.e., employ right view, to your practice of concentration, to your practice of the path, so it gets more and more skillful. Um, secondly, there's self-esteem. Um, in fact, the Buddha actually uses the word conceit. He says conceit has a place on the path, in the sense that you see, you know, other people are doing following the path. They're just human beings. There's nothing special about them. I'm a human being. Why can't I do this? There's a kind of conceit that goes there, but it's a healthy conceit. It's a kind of seed. Not, not the conceit that says, I'm already good, but says, I have the capability of learning. If you're going to be conceited about something, be conceited about your desire to learn. Those of you who have listened to Larry know that we're on the same page on this one. <laughs> and finally, there's a sense of self-love that includes compassion. One of my favorite stories from the Pali Canon concerns King Basanity and Queen Malika. They're up in their inner, inner sanctum. And King Basanity, in a moment of tenderness, turns to Queen Malika and says, Is there anyone you love more than yourself? <laughs> now, if this were Hollywood, you'd know her answer. And she said, Yes, my, Your Majesty, I love you more than I love myself. And you know, the soundtrack would get louder and louder, um, <laughs> drowning out any doubts to say, Wait a minute, she's lying. Um, <laughs> but Queen Malika, she, she's not a Hollywood star. She's, you know, she's in the Pali County. She says, No. <laughs> There's nobody I love more than myself. And then she turns to him, How about you? Anybody you love more than yourself? And the king has to be forced to be honest as well, no. So that's the end of that scene. <laughs> the king goes down from the palace, goes and visits the Buddha, and reports what happened. And the Buddha says, that's right. That you, you could survey the world, and you would never find anybody that you love more than yourself. 
And at the same time, you never find that everybody else loves themselves very fiercely. And when you reflect on that, you realize you would never want to harm anybody. Now think about that. The reason for that is people love themselves. If your happiness depends on their harm, they're not going to stand for it. So as you're planning for your happiness, if you want your happiness to be solid and true, you've got to take their happiness into consideration. So this is kind of an enlightened self-interest reason for why we have to feel compassion. And you think about it as a baby. When did you learn compassion for your mother? Not because of your innate Buddha nature. It was because you realized, if my mother's happy, I'm going to be happy. Life will be a lot easier in the house. And so you, that's how you learn the beginning of being sensitive to your parents' parents' moods. Okay. So what you've got here is the, pra- the, pra- the practice requires a, sen- a state of becoming that is built on these three kinds of clinging. Clinging to particular habits and practices, clinging to views, and also clinging to this sense of, the sense of self that's responsible, has a sense of self-esteem, a sense of uh, intelligent, enlightened self, self-love. In doing this, you create a state of concentration, which becomes the ideal state of becoming, for which you can then observe other states of becoming as they come and go. You'll probably realize that if you've ever tried to meditate, what do you see, say, when you're focusing on your breath? You don't just see your breath, you also see all the other thoughts coming into your mind. Now, in the beginning, your first task is to learn not to pay attention to them, so you can get really focused on the breath. But once that focus gets really solid, then you can start observing these other processes. When a thought comes into the mind, how does it form? When you've got this, you know, these incipient states of becoming coming up, how do they get created? This is why you can watch. This is how you can watch becoming as it comes up. For most of us, if you haven't practiced meditation, these states of becoming, as they come up in the mind, they're like a car that's driving up along the road. They stop in front of you and say, hey, get in, and you get in. <laughs> And only when they're driving off do you ask, hey, hey where are we going? <laughs> and, and who are you? <laughs> Who's driving? And if we lived our lives like that, we would have been, we'd have been shot on, in the end of some you know, dark alley some night. Um, but this is the way we ordinarily run with our minds. But in, you can get the state in a state of concentration where it's not so easily pulled into its thoughts. Then you begin to realize, okay, what's happening? This is because... Right concentration one is based on mindfulness and alertness. Um, one of the important lessons you should learn f- about the Buddhist path is he never created a clear distinction between mindfulness practice and concentration practice. They're both parts of the same thing. Mindfulness starts out, as you develop mindfulness, you, you establish your frame of reference, and as it gets more and more solid, it turns into concentration. You've got that sense of the full body and being fully aware of your whole body, very mindful of your whole body. And the Buddha actually says it's only in the fourth jhana, which is the, the point where your breath stops, that mindfulness is totally pure and totally, totally solid. So, state of concentration is built on mindfulness and alertness. It also has a state of consistent one-pointedness, that you're focused on the one topic. Because you're focused on one topic, this is how you can observe other things as they come and go, because you've got a solid frame of, a point of reference. An analogy you might want to use is of thinking, lying on your back, on a, on a grassy meadow, looking up at the sky. If there's nothing on the ground that you can use as a point of reference, you don't know which direction the clouds are going. You don't even know how fast they're going. It's just this vague movement up there, and you don't really know for sure how fast they are, which direction they're going. If, however, there's a telephone pole or a tree or a house or something that you can compare it with, 
then you can see, oh, this one is going east and this one is going west, or how fast, or whatever. This is how you observe movements of the mind. You get the mind in one point, and whatever thoughts come in and out, you don't go with them. You've got your one point as a frame of reference, a point of reference. So this is how you can use the state of concentration to observe states of becoming as they begin to form in the mind. Ultimately, as you begin to loosen your attachment to these other states of becoming, ultimately you then start dismantling your attachment to the becoming of jhana. But in the meantime, what jhana also does is gives you experience in manipulating the aggregates, which are the field of becoming. Because, for example, in the first jhana, you're focused on the breath, that's form. You're trying to create a feeling of ease, that's the aggregate of feeling. You use your perception of breath, 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 filling the whole body. It's the aggregate of perception. You're trying to, in the first genre, that's what they call directed thought and evaluation, in which you keep reminding yourself to stay with the breath, and then you evaluate how the breath feels. Is it comfortable? Is it not? So that's the aggregate of fabrication. And then finally, there's the consciousness, which is aware of all of this. So that's all five aggregates. That's the field of becoming. And you're learning how to master or deal with these things in a skillful way as you get the mind focused down. Secondly, there are many different levels of jhana, and as you move from one to the next, your perceptions change or because there's less and less fabrication going on. For instance, when you go to the second jhana, that fabrication of basically talking to yourself about the breath, that gets dropped because you become one with the breath. You're kind of just planted in the breath solidly. And so you've let go of one level of fabrication. When you reach the fourth jhana, it said that okay, the bodily fabrication of the breath itself stops. The breath gets very still. So you begin to see as you get more and more focused, different levels of fabrication fall away. And so you immediately perceive the five aggregates to become no longer just concepts. That's actually something you have experience dealing with. You can see them begin to sort of separate out. And John Lee gives the example of putting a rock that has different kinds of ore into a fire. When the, te- when the heat reaches a certain temperature, if there's any lead in the rock, it'll come out. When it reaches another temperature, any gold in the rock will come out. Another temperature, any silver. And I don't my chemistry well enough to know which is going to melt first or not. But essentially, th- these begin to melt out, and you begin to see that even though they were all combined in the rock, when you reach a certain level of proficiency, they start to naturally separate out, which is what you can do in this state of jhana. Now, once you've got this state of becoming solid, this is when the Buddha has you focus more and more on the, what, he, what he called three perceptions. We, we usually call them the three characteristics. But in the Pali Canon, they're, they're described as perceptions. This is a label that you apply to your experience. One is you look at all the potentials that could be created, that could turn into a state of becoming. Or you look into all of the states of becoming that arise. And first you see how inconstant and impermanent they are. And no matter how nice they are, they still are going to change all the time. And because it's not that they will end someday, they're constantly ending right now, and you've got to just keep shoring them up, shoring them up, which means that not only are they changing, they're also stressful. And because they're stressful, the question comes, do you really want to build an identity around them? It's like going into a house knowing that the house is going to come crashing down. So the purpose of this is to attack this water of craving and clinging that keeps you creating all these new worlds, thinking that you're going to get some satisfaction out of them. Realizing, okay, it's it's going to come crashing down at some point. And this is how you begin to sort of develop a sense of dispassion. 
This, and this is called th- seeing things as they have come to be. In other words, the, the potentials of your past karma will come up into your awareness. And this is largely what a lot of distracting thoughts are in your meditation. It's just past karma just kind of bubbling up. And instead of doing anything or creating anything out of them, you just want to let them go on their own. You see that they're going to go on their own anyhow. So you don't have to destroy them. You don't have to create anything out of them. And this is how you begin to sort of let this process of becoming naturally begins to um, unravel. And finally, what you see is things simply arising, at stress arising, stress passing away. And the Buddha says even at that point, the, the sense of things existing or not existing doesn't occur to you. All you see is this process of continual arising and passing away. This is when you begin to let go of any kind of becoming that would come. And you let go of any, de- any desire to deal in any way either to drive things out of existence or to keep them going. Because you see that just the, the, the concept of existence or non-existence at that point really don't really, don't really apply or don't occur to the mind. Now the Buddha says once you reach this point, you let, totally let go of the sense of location that was created by the sense of clinging and becoming, and that's when you t- attain freedom from limitations. You're no longer defined by your desires, you're not defined in any terms, even if existing, non-existing, or both, or neither. And this, the Buddha says, is the greatest pleasure. Now sometimes the question will arise, is, in this experience of the greatest pleasure, do you still exist or not? And Ajahn Sawat, who was my teacher, one of my teachers, said, hey, when you've got the greatest pleasure, <laughs> you're not going to care <laughs> whether you could be described as existing or not existing or both or neither. That's not an issue anymore. And you realize that the reason you created a sense of self to begin with was because you felt by having a sense of self, you'd have a sense of control, that you could manipulate things so you could create a sense of happiness. Once you've got the greatest happiness, you don't need that sense of self anymore. You can drop it. And that's, that's, that's the meaning of the not-self teaching, is that you don't need a sense of self. Many times when we hear when the Buddha says there's no self, we feel like we're being deprived. At some place down the line, they're going to take our self away. <laughs> what he's actually saying is, hey, look, develop a sense of self that's skillful, you know, responsible, reliable, intelligently compassionate, intelligently with intelligent self-esteem. Keep that going until you don't need it anymore, then you can drop it. And you'll drop it not naturally. So, so that's, that's, that's talking about the end of the path. For the purpose of tonight's talk, the important thing is that you realize that we're talking here in terms of strategy and skill. Many times we hear, you know, becoming is a bad thing. You think, well, I'm just going to abolish becoming. Clinging and craving are bad things. Let's just try to drop them and pretend we don't have them. It doesn't work that way. You use a strategic paradox. You have to develop a sense of becoming using craving and clinging. Clinging in the forms of clinging to habits and practices, clinging to views, clinging to an idea of who you are so that you can create a state of becoming that allows you then to look at things with more dispassion. And that's how you let things go. So you're using desire, you're using clinging, eventually to overcome desire and clinging. You're using your sense of self so that you can eventually go, you go beyond any need to define yourself. Um, in other words, the Buddha didn't play gotcha. The idea of saying, here, here's this wonderful goal up here, but if you have any desire for the goal, sorry. That's not how the Buddha, that's not how the Buddha taught. He said, look, Desire intelligently. Cling skillfully. And you can get to the point where you don't need to cling anymore, when you don't need any desire anymore. Um, I'd like to conclude now with two stories from the forest tradition. One is a John Lee, who was my teacher's teacher. One time he went into Bangkok, and 
there was a senior monk in the Bangkok hierarchy who was giving the forest tradition a hard time. And it turned out this monk, senior monk, was now sick. So John Lee went and would sit in the room with the monk as he was sick and meditate. And there are lots of stories about a John Lee having really powerful meditation. I mean, people would sit in his presence and they, they would just kind of get concentrated because his concentration was so strong. And anyway, he was just sending a lot of energy into this sick monk. And the monk said, what are you doing? And John Lee says, I'm making a donation of quiet. <laughs> and the senior monk said, well, whatever it is, keep doing it, okay? <laughs> and as he, as, he, as he began to get, you know, recover from his illness, John Lee started teaching him how to meditate. And the senior monk was, became quite a good meditator. Now, having been a scholarly monk, at one point he said, now, wait a minute, as we're meditating here, getting into concentration, isn't this creating a state of becoming? And John Lee says, yeah, that's precisely what we're doing. And the monk said, well, I thought we were, we were practicing to get rid of becoming. And John Lee said, well, it's like this. Suppose you have a chicken that lays eggs, and you want to understand the process of what eggs are and how they're formed. Now, in the meantime, while you're trying to understand the process of how eggs are formed, you also have to eat. So you don't take apart every egg the chicken makes. You eat some of them. And then you take apart some of the other ones i.e. you have to gain a sense of well-being in the mind, because otherwise if you keep destroying everything that comes up in the mind, the mind is going to get really desperate. And whatever insight you have cannot be trusted. It's just going to be grabbing at anything. Whereas if you keep the mind well-fed, okay, then, then you start you know, examining what are these eggs? What are they made of? How are they made? How can we stop making them? Then you're coming from a position of well-being, and the insights you gain are a lot more trustworthy. The second story is one from a John Cha. John Cha once asked the people who were listening to him, said, suppose you're coming from the market and you're carrying a banana and you're carrying a coconut. And someone comes across to you and they says, why are you carrying the banana? Why are you carrying the coconut? And you say, I'm carrying the banana to eat. I'm carrying the coconut to go home and make a curry. And so the person says, well, are you going to eat the banana peel too? Are you going to curry the coconut husk? And you say, well, no. And the person says, then why are you carrying them? <laughs> and then John says, Cha says, how would you answer them? And his answer is, he said, you answer through desire. <laughs> You're going to come up with an answer to that question because you want the answer. And so sort of in the process of asking this question, he shows you that desire has a purpose. And he says, basically, you tell them, okay, you need the peel for the bananas because otherwise it's going to get mushy in your hand before you eat it. You need the husk for the coconut because before you curry it, you're going to need something to hold it in. And so even though they may accuse you of eating the peel and eating the husk, you know what you're doing. <laughs> so, and it's the same way. You need desire, you need craving and clinging on the path. It's simply a lesson of learning how to use them intelligently. So you can create the sense of becoming that puts you in a position where you can really understand the process of becoming and let it go, not simply out of brute desire, but out of understanding, as you simply watch the process fall away. So, those are the, so that's the, the basic paradox of becoming, and that's the Buddha's paradoxical strategy that gets around the paradox and leads you to a true happiness that's free from suffering. So those are my thoughts on the topic. Gosh, this is a long talk. Um, I get, what, we break for five minutes before the question, uh, question and answer? So, if you want to stand up and stretch. Any questions?
Yes. Um, I was. I thank you very much for coming, and I bless you for your wonderful talk. Um, it, it really always is great when we have a monk that comes who is. I mean, people. A lot of people talk about meditation, and there's a lot going on scientifically to prove the benefits of meditation. But for myself, what has proved the most beneficial is the meditation in the context of the teaching of the Buddha. And those teachings have helped me to find a path to less suffering very greatly in my own life. So that tonight's talk was, was uh, your student, uh, your novice was right. Talk, they said, talk slowly. Yes. Yeah. For a mind that is extremely reactive and wandering, uh, you know, uh, to pull yourself back to listening to your talk against the wind and the cars mm -hmm. was a little difficult. And I don't think that someone like myself could absorb these. This, I think this is a really great, is it true to say it's a fundamental teaching? Mm -hmm. I mean, a fundamental place. You know, we're really talking just, foundation, yeah. What? We're really talking foundation here. Okay, okay. So then my percep that, that perception is correct, or yeah. mine mm -hmm. was correct. I don't think I learned everything that I need to know about this teaching through your But that's not because you didn't teach it. Yeah. <laughs> My question to you is, what is a context to really take the time out from a busy life to do something that's critically important like learning this fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. How long, I mean, I, I know it's not a question, I'm going to say how long, yeah. but what's, a, what's the proper context of trying to really learn this much more thoroughly? One, it's good to be able to take some time off from your busy life just to get started on the process. Right. And then secondly, learn how to bring as much of that as you can into your daily life. Uh, you try to set time, time aside every day just to you know, be with the breath and not have any other responsibilities. Get up from that, from your meditation, and also try to stay centered in your breath as long as you can, as you go through the day. So you can giving yourself a, basically a, a solid point of reference as you go through the day, as you deal with other issues coming in, things you've got to think about, people you've got to deal with. I've I managed to really learn from the people who've taught here that that is in fact my practice. I have no trouble practicing here yeah. in this room. Yeah. It's out there that is the whole real practice for yeah. me. Mm -hmm. And I find myself constantly throughout the course of a given day taking a breath, mm -hmm. feeling where I am in my body, because I feel as though that grounds me, and I understand that that's a good practice. Right. Right. Feel what, what you're feeling at the moment. Mm -hmm. I was about to say though, I mean, is it something you go to, or uh, they teach this on a retreat for a couple of days to really try to get at this? Takes a couple of weeks. Takes a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it could be a, it's a vacation for a couple. People take vacations for a couple right, of weeks. Right, I mean, right, right, you know, right. That's yeah. not a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. But it's and not only and the important thing is as you're going through the day, not only that you're in touch with how the breath is going, but if the breath is uncomfortable, allow it to be more comfortable, so that it becomes a nicer and nicer place to keep coming back to. Well, I'm in the baby step stage where I'm even really finally being able to recognize that I'm having a breath. breath. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. the, you know, we come from a long line of highly reactive people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're talking about the human race, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about my family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you like you obviously like to laugh, but we have a joke we call 
dog. Sicilian's Alzheimer's. That's what you yeah. do. Well, you forget everything but the grudge. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, to recognize, be with, and then fall away from something. Yeah. But it, it, helps, it helps if you can distinguish, okay, would a longer breath now be more comfortable, a shorter breath? And start getting more sensitive to how the breathing feels in the body and what it's doing to your body. Sometimes I try to watch it, like pretend I'm watching it coming out my mouth, like with a flame on it. <laughs> 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 now, I know that sounds yeah. I mean, for, for a mind that is very distractible, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, I may have attention deficit disorder, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, seriously, I may have a neurological, but by, by I can feel the breath coming out and almost like the dragon, you know, it helps me focus on it. I, Fine. I, I, Whatever I, helps you focus is good. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. I was wondering, you said, um, I, I thought I heard you say something about suffering being stress, mm-hmm. and then you said... Another step is to find out what's causing the stress. Right. Mm. But I was wondering, you know, you know, I've heard a lot of don't figure it out. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the distinction. Okay, figuring it out, <clears throat> it's like any kind of skill that requires patience and time. And sometimes you look at something and you can immediately grok what's wrong. And other times you can't. In which case you have to learn, on the one hand, be learn how to live with a little bit of ambiguity in your life. I don't understand this yet, but I'm going to watch it until I see because it's, it does help to have a little, you know, some background in the theory, so it helps you know, teaches you where to look, but also helps helps to have a willingness to learn how to trust your own powers of observation and sit with something long enough until you. And the question always has to be in your mind. The the four noble truths are actually a kind of question: where is the stress? Where is the cause? And just kind of look for that. And. Um, some, and as I said, sometimes you'll be able to figure it out quickly, sometimes it takes more time. Yes? Uh, thank you very much mm-hmm. for sharing your thoughts on this. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I was uh, paying attention to what you were saying about how to approach the, the clinging mm-hmm. and the right concentration. <coughs> and I understand that. Uh, I've, I've been to uh, these uh, these talks where, to me, it seems like they're trying to reverse engineer the, the approach. That is, uh, somebody has gotten to a place in meditation where he feels no pain. Mm-hmm. It's just fantastic out there. And uh, love and compassion mm-hmm. come automatically. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to tell me how to... <laughs> How to you just feel try to feel love and compassion and eventually you get there. That seems to be in reverse. Like, trying to get it in there somehow. Um, now I I made some progress in in where I where I uh, where I am in my meditation practice, and that that somehow uh, propels me to or pulls me. I mean I get the I get the clinging to this. I want to have some more. I right, like right, it. Right. Uh, but, but in there, there seems to be, for me to do this, I have to have some, some 
some, I don't know what else to call it, by faith. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that this will, so, because I don't, I don't even know what I'm looking for. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, is, is there, is there a, an approach to, because at some point I know that what, whatever I reach will override like, for example, problems I have uh, doing meditation and, and, and clinging to things that are uncomfortable, but I still cling to them, and I don't know how to get rid of them. But at some point, I know that I, I have faith that whatever it is that I will learn will, will make these feelings or this, uh, this clinging, this bad clinging, uh, be uh, re in, in, within my mind, it will become reasonable for me and I'll be convinced to just let go of that stuff. Right. But is there, is, there a, <laughs> is there a way to approach it uh, so that I don't have to cling on to it longer than I have to? <laughs> <laughs> is there a shortcut to this? The shortcut, yeah. <laughs> What's we know Because he did mention he went out there for he practiced austerity for six years. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid I don't have that much time. Right. Yeah. 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 And, but this is how he learned. Right. And yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, throwing a question. It's, it's the impatient person's desire to how how to be patient. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one is try to focus on the question of where is there stress right now that's unnecessary. And just try to notice, what am I doing that's causing any unnecessary stress? Do I see the connection? Because the only way you're going to really let go is, one, when you see the connection between what you're doing and then the stress that's coming up. And then secondly, realizing that, that what you're doing is not really necessary. You don't have to do that. Now, many times, the things that we're doing that are causing stress are things that we actually like. And so we turn a blind eye to the fact there's this negative side to what we like. But when you see the connection that it's there, and secondly, that you don't really have to do it, that's when you let go. So that's got to be the question that you pose in your mind. But as for whether, you know, how are you going to speed up the process, <laughs> um, give yourself better things to cling to. <laughs> give yourself better things to cling to. Like the idea that, okay, I can develop a sense of calm. I can, this is something I can humanly do. And that even, even though there may be all this me, you know, turmoil around me, or inside my mind, there's still going to be a quiet spot. Look for the quiet spot inside. And just trust that it's there. Now, the Buddha is very upfront up about the fact that, yes, this path does require a certain amount of faith. But it's faith that eventually is confirmed. The analogy he gives is of a person looking for a bull elephant in the forest. And you come along and you see some big footprints in the, in the, in the forest. But because you're an experienced elephant hunter, you know, I can't say yet that this is really a bull elephant because there may be dwarf females with big feet. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's more humor in the polycanon than people give the public <laughs> But it looks promising, you know. Big footprints look promising. You know? And so you just keep going. Then you start seeing scratch marks up in the trees. You say, well, this, this could be a bull elephant, but there are females with tusks. So we've got to look further. And then finally you get to the, the clearing. You say, yes, this is a bull elephant. And so on the one hand, you, you don't completely, completely say, you know, for sure, this has just got to be true. But you've got a certain amount of conviction that this looks promising. And you follow through. And then when you actually see the results coming, that's when you've, that's when you've seen the bull elephant. Well, that is what I'm trying to practice. Yeah, yeah.
Doesn't the bull elephant then run away? No. <laughs> if he runs away, he's not the bull elephant you want. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Question over here. Yes, thank you, Um With your talk tonight, I couldn't help but wonder if there is a limit to what you can achieve remaining, you know, in a situation where you're working, renting, um, when I think of the stresses in my life, um, clearly there's a lot that I could manage better and the concentration and, and the meditation practice, I've already seen the benefits in subtle ways, but also less subtle ways. Um, and it's not that I'm ever expecting to reach a high level on this path, but I guess I'm wondering, is it possible? Um, as with any skill, you have to learn to work within limitations. I mean, my, my teacher had a number of lay students who were, they weren't in Cambridge, they were in Bangkok. <laughs> and still, they were able to do, get a lot of really good progress in their meditation. Now, it required a lot of dedication, and there were certain parts of their lives where they had to say no to a promotion, realizing that that promotion was going to take away a lot of valuable time to practice. Um, and you know, whatever spare time they had, they would give to the practice, and also find ways of taking the practice into their daily work. But it is possible. I mean, you, you're, you are handicapping yourself by you know, taking on a lot of responsibilities. But there's no place in the world where there's, there are no limitations at all. You go to a forest monastery in Thailand, if there's no electricity, no running water, you've got to haul water you know, several hours out of the day. And you, physically, it's exhausting work. Um, mentally, you have a lot less that you're responsible for, which is important. But so within any situation, it's okay, these are the limitations. You want to be realistic about the limitations. How do I work around them? And that's that's something you've got to ask for your, answer, answer for yourself. But you know, as, you, as you've already noticed, whatever pro progress you get on the path is good progress. So keep with it. Yes. Could you just mention a little bit more about right livelihood mm -hmm. and understanding around uh, some of the subtleties in that? Okay. Um, of the factors of the noble path, this is the one the Buddha was most vague about. Now, now, there are a couple of um, points that he made. There's one, there's certain kinds of um, commerce that you don't want to get involved with. You know, selling slaves, selling animals, selling meat, um, selling poisons, selling weapons, or selling um, intoxicants. You know, avoid those. Um, the only other cases I can see where the Buddha actually talked about particular occupations being really unskillful. And it's interesting how he approached this. Um, First off, there was a, a soldier, a professional soldier, comes up to see him. And apparently, this, they had two kinds of soldiers in the time of the Buddha. One was, you know, you were drafted, and they just, the king's soldiers would come into your village and say, okay, all you guys got to go out and fight. But there are also people who, who did professional training to become soldiers. And, and this one professional soldier came to see him one time and said, look, I've been told by my teachers that if you die in battle, you are going to go to the, you know, the heaven of the, the heroes who die in battle. And what does the Buddha think about this? And the Buddha says, don't ask. And the guy says, no, I really want to know. And the Buddha says, you don't want to know. <laughs> but the guy's insistent. So finally, after the third time, the Buddha says, you know, if you're engaged in battle with the, you know, the desire to see these beings and other, other people die, 
So you're, you're, you're engaged in your greed, anger, delusion, passion, for you know, all these unskillful mental states. Um, if you die with these unskillful mental states, you're going to go to the hell of people who die in battle. And the, the soldier breaks down and cries and says, see, I, see, I didn't want to, you know, Buddhist, I didn't want to answer this for you. Um, and then the soldier said, no, I was just upset that my teachers had lied to me. So I said, and then he, you know, he abandons his soldierly ways. And, uh, and there's a second case which is very similar where this actor comes. This is one of the reasons why you don't see actors and actresses in Hollywood consorting with Theravada monks. Because oh. <laughs> they say, you know, if, you know, if you give enjoyment to people, then you will go to the heaven of laughter. And the Buddha says, no, if you're acting in such a way that's going to give rise to greed, aversion, and delusion in your audience, okay, you're doing something unskillful, you're going to go to the hell of laughter. I.e., people are not laughing with you, they're laughing at you. And again, the, the actor breaks down and cries and for the same reason. So, you know, the Buddha didn't go around saying, hey, you, you, that's a bad occupation. But if people were serious, asking, this occupation I'm engaged in, and the question the Buddha always comes back with is, okay, what kind of mind states are you cultivating as you're engaged in that? And if you find that you're engaged in you know, cultivating unskillful mind states, change your occupation. I'm also interested in the word awakening because mm-hmm. it doesn't seem. I just get confused about this about waking, waking up being whether it's an on-off thing or or it's a something by degrees. It, it's a gradual process because what you're doing as you engage in the path. Um, let me back up a minute. The awakening is the end of ignorance, and the word ignorance in Pali, avijja means not only lack of knowledge, but it also means lack of skill. And, and, and any, any kind of manual skill. Say, you know, if you've, you've got some practice being a painter or being a cook. When you first start out, you really don't know your ingredients that well. But over time, you get to know the ingredients better. You get more sensitive to what they, they are capable of and what you're capable of. And it's that increased sensitivity that will eventually give you the ability to have a kind of a breakthrough. The Buddha's analogy is of a gradual slope and then a sudden drop-off. So it's, is there more than one? There are f- actually four levels of awakening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is the, you know, progress is possible and real and necessary. Now, you may have been to retreats where they say, you know, there is no good meditation, there's no bad meditation. That's because your typical weekend retreat is a pressure cooker you know, where you say, okay, I've got to get something out of this. You know, it's, it's either going to the beach or I'm going to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> And if I'm going to meditate, I want something to show for it. And that, that's, just, that's you're setting yourself up for a, you know, a really bad weekend. <laughs> and so this is one of the reasons why they tell you, there's no such thing as a good or bad meditation. You've got to just sort of learn how to be with whatever's there. Which for a weekend meditation is a wise teaching. For a lifetime meditation, you've got to have a sense of progress in what you're trying to attain and how you're, the steps that you're going to follow as you attain it. Yes? Uh, earlier in your talk, uh, you mentioned what the factor was, right view. And you made a comment along the lines of uh, right view at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I was curious if you could elaborate on that. Sure. <sighs> Suppose you know who the right person to be the president of the United States would be. But you're in a room full of people who are not going to agree with you at all. You just keep quiet about the view. And you learn how to talk to them politely. And if they bring up, you know, other issues, they bring up politics, you learn how to avoid the issue. 
In other words, you're not going around trying to club people with a view all the time. I think the, the problem is the connotation. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, there really are times in your practice where you are needy, and you need, really need something to hold on to, and it's good to have something there that you hold on to. The word for clinging can also mean to feed. You know, and there's healthy feeding and unhealthy feeding. So think of this as a source of nourishment of your practice. And, you know, when you find a good source of food, you're not going to let it go easily. <laughs> so you hold on. Yes. Um, I've been exper- I've been practicing TM for quite some time, and I've lately been doing this kind of meditation because I think it might be a better fit for me, just in terms of well, wearing it like a garment. It feels like a gentler garment because it doesn't involve bringing. They're, they're similar in that you simply gently bring back the mantra or gently come back to the breath again. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that I'm doing both mm-hmm. in every meditation. Mm-hmm. And I'm just letting that happen too. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, maybe it'll be this kind of schizophrenic. Well, and actually, in, actually in Thailand, it's, it's usually combined at the beginning. There's the, the, the typical mantra would be bhutho, which means to be awake. You boot with the end breath, toe with the out. And you, you repeat that long enough so that you can help kind of remind yourself to stay with the breath. There, come, there will come a point, though, where the mantra becomes burdensome, when you realize that you could stay with the breath without it. And at that point, you can let it go. So if you find that you need it, that's perfectly okay. Or if you find that it's kind of you're there in the background because it's been so, you know, it's habitual. I don't feel as long as needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. But, habit. Yeah, it's a habit. Uh, but, you know, make your primary focus the breath. And if the mantra's in the background, fine. No problem. Yes? Hi. Um, as I'm sure you know, um, and, um, basically, the Buddha spoke in Magadhi, and that was translated into Pali. And then we've translated from Pali into other languages. Um, we have no other records of Pali besides the Buddha's teachings, and um, you know, also um, his teachings were transmitted um, through like word for a long time. I'm just wondering, how do we know that we've got the right message? Put it to, to test. Yeah, try it. Can you, if you can, you get the mind to settle down because it's it's. I mean, this is where the the, the experience originally came from the mind. It went through languages and, and texts and everything, but it's got to come back to the mind, and that's the proving ground. So if you find that you focus on the breath, and the Buddha says you focus on this way, and, and you gain these experiences, I mean, part of it's like learning any foreign language. Is that you've got to learn how to get kind of a visceral sense of what the words mean. 
But the ultimate test is the sense of, am I getting results? And he once said that the important teachings that he left behind were basically qualities of mind. You know, that would you, I don't know if you've ever seen the book Wings to Awakening, or heard of the Wings to Awakening. But it's basically the Buddha, at one point toward the end of his life, he gave a list of seven sets of dharmas. He said, okay, these are the important ones. And they're almost totally qualities of mind. Things like conviction, concentration, discernment, equanimity. And those are pretty obvious what they mean. And it's just simply a question of how do you induce these qualities in your mind. Once they're there, then they're the proof. Okay, this is what the Buddha was talking about, and this is this is what what works. It doesn't work. One more question. Yes. You talked about abstraction very briefly, and you mentioned mathematics in that context. And I wasn't quite sure how that related to states of awareness. And I'm asking because they spend a lot of work. Okay. Well, there's. Um, you know, the, the Buddha talked about three levels of becoming. There's the sensual level, there's a level of form, and there's a level of formlessness. Um, dealing with infinity, you would be dealing with formlessness. Dealing with other mathematical concepts. I mean, you get some people when they think about math, they will actually think in terms of the numbers. Others will think in shapes. And the shapes or the numbers, those are forms. So you're kind of on a level of form there as you're dealing with, those, with that kind of thinking. <laughs> I understand these are illegal in this room. <laughs> so, the little post it says to end. Okay, <laughs> the Q and A is over. Tea is available downstairs. You can have your attention tamer. <laughs> and thank you for your attention tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.